Jonah 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he would make himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it had withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, I have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it and make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I have not concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also so many animals? Martin, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us into this gathering, your family, where you invite all to repent and receive forgiveness and grace and belonging in the eternal family of God. For both Jonah and Nineveh, you invite us all to come to you and see you as you are. So show us what that means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Martin, for reading. Uh, good morning, everyone. If you're new, again, welcome to Park Hill Church. My name's Evan, and my wife, Sandy, and I have the honor of leading this church. And like Greg said, today we finish the book of Jonah. So where we've been, how things have been building. So David Wade kicked us off, if you remember, uh, in our first teaching by reminding us that Jonah is first and foremost a story. Just like the rest of Scripture, Scripture is story. And when you hear story, don't think fantasy or like not true story. Jonah is very true story. It's obviously not like a modern history book, like we think of modern history books. Like Dr. Bashir said last week, the book of Jonah is full of exaggerated images to make a more important point. And what point is that? In David Wade's words, the story of Jonah is about what happens when our desires come into conflict with God's desires and how he responds to us in those moments. Well said, David, wherever you are. I don't know if you're in the room. Uh, and then in part two, Aaliyah Persley took us straight into the belly of the beast, right? On Mother's Day, Despair in the Belly was her working title for that one. And after running from God, Jonah finds himself swallowed up by depression. The sea is dark and lonely in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And Jonah refuses to obey God and it lands him even deeper than the sea. In the impossible belly of a fish, impossible. Far from hope, and that's the point. In Aaliyah's words, even when Jonah's at his worst, God is faithful. God's severe mercy even shows up in the belly of the fish. And this book is brilliant storytelling, am I right? It's like, how good is God? 
How good is he, the way he shows up for us? And then in part three, Tanika Wyatt, she, she made us step back and ask ourselves some really vulnerable questions, like in what ways have we legitimized our sin like Jonah did? Let's take inventory of our spiritual lives and evaluate how much of it is self-centered. Do we make our own plans despite God's call? Do we? And then last week, uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs he walked us through Jonah chapter 3, where the murderous people of Nineveh, they deserve judgment and they hear about judgment, but they change. And God responds to them with mercy. Oh, there's David. There you are. I see you now. And God responds to them with mercy. And in Gary's words, this proves that no one is immune to the grace of Yahweh. It reaches everyone. It just depends. you got to respond now. It's on you now. No one's too far gone. God is out to bless and forgive anyone, everyone, who will turn to him, period. Which forces, forces us today in this sunny building to ask a couple questions. Number one, am I willing right now to fully turn? Wherever I'm at, whatever I'm bringing in, am I willing to turn to God in humility and surrender? Or am I keeping my own stuff for my own comfort? And then the second question becomes, well, who am I keeping my stuff from? Who's my Nineveh? Who have I written off as unworthy of receiving the mercy I needed? Because no way, they're too far gone. They're too narcissistic. They're maybe too abusive. Everybody knows they're abusers. I'm not saying we're supposed to trust those Ninevites with our lives, like join a community group with the Ninevites or something. But what would it look like for me to bless them instead of throw curses at them over Twitter? Who's my Nineveh? Abusive and horrible or evil. I I may not be called to trust them with my kids, but I am called to release them to God and genuinely work for God's best for them. This now, now it's feeling personal. Now I don't know if I like Jonah. I don't know if I like the story now. Which brings us to the final scene, chapter four. It's this tragic ending. And one thing we're going to see, if you haven't already noticed, this is not a kid's book. Like Jonah's not a children colorful book, you know. For those of us that grew up around church, we probably read one or two colorful whale books with Jonah's face and a big fish on the front, you know. Um, which is the ending of those kids' books. It's always very watered down and happy and resolved and not at all messy. And uh, so kind of like a version of the book, my son Jaden texted us a video. <laughs> He's up in Portland last, this last week. He's still there. He gets home tomorrow visiting his friends. And um, he was helping out in their church last Sunday in the kids' class. And he found this Jonah book and he sent me this video and this is how Jonah ends. You guys, this is... Oh, wait, wait for the airplane. Uh, we can't hear him. So let's play it after the airplane goes over. You need to see this story. Can you replay it? With the audio. He tells... He narrates it. You can hear the kids laughing. Why did you forgive the people of Nineveh instead of punishing them? Jonah asked God. They've learned to be good now, and an- answered God. They need another chance just like you did. Now Jonah understood the meaning of forgiveness. Look at this beautiful scene. Wow. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of Jonah. There's nothing, there's nothing else to that story. He's just, he learned. That's pretty good. That's it. Jonah learned. There it is. We're done. We can leave. No, so, <clears throat> sadly, that's not how the story ends. The children's book is wrong. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> 
So, so Jodah isn't a children's story. Of course, children can grasp it, the basic outline, assuming it's the correct outline, right? But the themes of this story are just so messy and profound and uncomfortable. Uh, it takes some serious maturity to get them. Themes about religious hypocrisy, you know, and religious nationalism, and exposing spiritual apathy and the devastating effects of unforgiveness on our own soul. And the way God can use pain and suffering in our lives as a severe mercy to wake us up to deeper goodness. I mean, when's the last time you tried explaining the reality of divine judgment to a three-year-old? Right? You just, it's not easy. It's, you might not even want to yet quite in its fullness. These are, these are really themes meant for adults. Why? Because the ultimate goal of this story is not to entertain kids, but to reveal God's character to God's people so that we all might become his fully mature family. A family that trusts God when trusting doesn't make sense and forgives each other when forgiving doesn't make sense. Uh, so today we come to the non-sugar-coated-for-kids final scene of Jonah where we encounter this ridiculous, bitter, sunburned man uh, sitting alone in the desert somewhere east of Nineveh announcing to God that he would rather die than live with a God like Yahweh. So, so here we are. And, and we, we, that sounds really dark, doesn't it? And we ask, how does this dark story ending give us God's word for today? That's the right question. So remember the story. <clears throat> God tells Jonah to preach to Jonah's enemies. Jonah runs the opposite way as far as he can. And then God sends a big storm and a big fish actually to save Jonah's life. And then Jonah preaches to Nineveh this five-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's five words. 40 more days, and Nineveh overthrown. That's the sermon. And Nineveh, all Nineveh turns. <laughs> all of them. You'd think Jonah, the preacher, would be pumped at his preaching power, you know? How, who here has ever preached to some, like, shared the gospel, and then the person comes to Jesus? They come to faith through your influence. Anyone ever shared the gospel? Yeah, it's like one of the best feelings for children of God. Imagine a whole city responds to your message. How would you feel? pumped. That's unheard of success. But Jonah doesn't see it that way. Here's Jonah's reaction. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. Here's how chapter 4 begins. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Welcome to the closing scene of Jonah. He's like, no, 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 God, this is all wrong. And then Jonah prays, and, and listen, this is not a, God, help me understand your will prayer. No, this is a, God, I'm going to chew you out right now prayer. This might be a new category of prayer for some of you here today, the prayer of letting God have it. This is actually a very common form of prayer in the Psalms. Did you know this? Prayers of venting to God, even angrily and imperfectly. And who knows what, what words come out of your mouth. Maybe for some of you, you're familiar with this kind of prayer. And you resonate with how Jonah's faith is falling apart at the seams in a prayer form. And I just want to pause right here and remind everyone here, there are people in our church right now who are going through some of the most difficult situations I've ever heard of. Uh, you know who you are. You're in the room. And... Uh, Listen, you keep, keep turning to God to vent. 
Bring God your vent prayer. He can take it. Keep finding space for silence, not just silence and solitude, but screaming. Keep letting God have it. He's pretty strong. Your vent prayer is actually an ancient form of faithful psalm that honestly the majority of us comfort and safety addicted Western Christians, we're not familiar with it, but you are. You're not unfamiliar with that kind of pain. And, and God knows you don't want your current situation, but the reality is because of your situation, you are uniquely equipped against your desire. You're uniquely equipped to inhabit some of the most ancient, angry, but deeply Christ-like psalms in Jesus' own prayer book. So if you're angry at, with, or about God, and, or you're angry about your current life circumstances, then pray Psalms 22, 35, 69, 109. Take a picture of this slide if you want, or I can email it to you if you don't wanna be taking the picture. Just to name four Psalms, there's many others too. The Bible gives us ancient liturgy for being angry well. And this is what Jonah does here. At least for a moment, he's doing the right thing with his anger. Bringing it to God. So in chapter four, his angry prayer, very different than his chapter two prayer. Do you know this? Look at this next slide. I don't know if you can see. That's, that's Jonah's prayer from the belly of the beast in chapter two. And it's very different than this one. But back then, in my distress, I called to Yahweh. He answered me with shouts of grateful praise. I'll sacrifice. I'll say salvation comes from Yahweh. All caps, Lord is his name. You, Yahweh, are my salvation. But now, look at Jonah four. I knew you were gracious. I hate that you're saving my enemies. You're too dang forgiving. Now, Yahweh, kill me because I'd rather die than worship a God like you. But he's praying it. Jonah's trust is unraveling. Now that God is saving his enemies, Jonah's raging. So let's zoom in on this prayer. Verses two and three, he prayed to Yahweh isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? That's, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Yahweh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You can feel the heat of his rage. And you feel the irony, too. See the words he uses to describe God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Abounding in love, these are typically good qualities. We see them in other people, we would applaud. But do these sound, do those qualities sound familiar from another place in the Bible? If you've been around Park Hill, hopefully you recognize gracious, compassion, slow to anger. Where does that come from? Dr. Bashir said it last week. It comes from Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, which is kind of like the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. Just like John 3.16 is like the most popular Bible verse for Christians, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 was the most popular Bible verse for God's people in the Old Testament times. It's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible writers. They love this one the best, apparently. Why? Because Exodus 34 is this special moment in the story of the Bible where Yahweh verbally introduces and describes himself to a human for the first time. He's creator, he's redeemer, but now he's like, let me tell you, let me give you my bio, he says. 
And he's like, okay, Moses, I'll show you who I am. How many of you know that moment and the story of that moment? It's actually profound. In light of the Jonah story, the Exodus story is profound. So just recap. Exodus, slavery in Egypt, Prince of Egypt, Moses, let my people go, Ten Commandments. You know that story. So Moses goes up on a mountain. The slaves are free. They're wandering around, finding their identity. And, And Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? What are the first two commandments? Can you shout them out? No other gods, have no other gods but me, Yahweh. You know the second command? Don't make any idols. Yeah, don't make any idols and don't worship these idols you make. Meanwhile, God's people are down the mountain. What's taking Moses so long? We want to meet God too. So what do they do? They have an idol. They make an idol and they worship it. So they're, they know exactly what they're doing. And they do it weird. They do it with like a sexual fertility ritual, just cherry on top. You know what I mean? This is just like weird ice cream sundae of already disobeying God with, in a weird way. And they know what they're doing. And so God says he's going to dump his people and start over with Moses' family. What does Moses do? No, God, don't do it. He intercedes. Please forgive your people, Yahweh. Please forgive your people. And what does God do? He forgives his people. And he renews the covenant with them. And Moses says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yahweh, who, where, why are you doing this? Who are you? And Yahweh says, I'm Yahweh. Gracious, compassionate. And that's the moment. I'm slow to anger. I'm full of love, faithful love, committed love. And I, I also don't leave guilty people unpunished, which is why I keep engaging people until they repent and receive my grace. In other words, Israel exists as God's people because God is like this. Do you see the Jonah humor, the irony? This is, this is Bible comedy hour. This is supposed to be funny right here in, in like Bible humor. <clears throat> Here's Jonah centuries later taking these words from Yahweh and throwing them back in Yahweh's face. Jonah's like, I knew you were like this. You have always been like this since day one. And the irony is Jonah wouldn't exist as an Israelite if God wasn't like this. This is the irony of this scene. You and I are supposed to feel his real anger at a very real level, but then we're supposed to back up and see the bigger picture, and Jonah wouldn't belong. You have the next slide. Jonah wouldn't belong to God's forgiven family if it weren't for the same God who's currently forgiving Jonah's enemies right before Jonah's angry eyes. He's too busy raging. God, I knew you were like this. You made me come here in the first place. And so here we are, Park Hill Church, again, sitting in this bright, sunny building, reading about Jonah's ridiculousness, and we kind of laugh at him. Like, Jonah, you wouldn't exist if it weren't for God's qualities that you're now hating. And it seems ridiculous. But what Jonah 4 is doing is exposing the dark side of God's mercy. The bizarre conclusion of Jonah shows us what it looks like when we truly see the scandal of God's grace. When we truly understand the gravity of grace, the wideness of his mercy, it should absolutely mess with you. Because let's face it, I'm very happy when Jesus shows me his grace. I know most of my sins, and I want grace for all of them, even the ones I don't know about, and I'm quite happy with Jesus forgiving me. But then there's this really complex dynamic 
that we don't give nearly enough attention to as modern, comfortable, safe American Christians. And it's this dynamic when we wake up and realize, yeah, Jesus is a blessing to me, and he's like that to the person I despise and avoid for good reasons in my mind. Jonah 4 forces us to see this. And maybe it's, maybe it's them over there. I really disagree with them. But then God starts moving in them. God starts really moving over there in that group. And people are repenting and coming to Jesus over there. An obvious example of this would be, you know, people who were angry and jealous about God pouring his spirit out on Asbury during the Asbury revival a couple months ago. And people, you know, lots of people just suspicious about Asbury. It's like, but God, they're Wesleyan, you know, or whatever. <laughs> they're, historic, they're historic Methodist. They're not like our buttoned-up theology, our superior camp that's obviously the camp God loves the most because we have a way better grasp of theism and church history. Why are you pouring your spirit out on them? Over there? Yahweh, how dare you? So whatever that them is, God's mercy over there is making me angry right here. And at one level, we laugh at Jonah for this, but that's our non-self-aware level. When we dig a little deeper and we become aware of ourselves, I wake up to how I resist the wideness of God's grace and how much God's grace and mercy actually does offend me. And that is the self-aware level Jonah 4 is trying to get all of us to. We're supposed to look at Jonah's ridiculousness and the irony of the situation, like, oh, wait, oh, my gosh, Jonah hates God's compassion for God's end. Jonah hates God's compassion on his enemies, which is the same compassion that saved Jonah. We're supposed to see that and then go, oh, that's how I am right now. That's what I think about the wideness of God's grace toward X, fill in the, fill in the group. And only when we make that move, that genuinely self-aware move of naming the specific ways I don't like how God forgives them, it's only then that I become free to forgive and love like Jesus. So we have to make that move. When God loves our enemies, how do we respond, really? I, I actually think we're experts at dodging that question, even now still. Like right now, we're doing things in our minds, myself included. We're highly skilled at defending and justifying why we should not only refuse to love our enemies like Jesus, but we should also be ready at all times to defend ourselves against our enemies, even if it means killing them. We're experts at avoiding enemy love. And remember, in Scripture, love is defined as seeking the best for another person, even at the cost of my own comfort. We're really good at dodging Jesus' call to love all our enemies like that. We always find excuses to that rule. One helpful way to get past our own defensiveness here is to watch how our culture talks about forgiveness. Why we spent a whole day thinking about forgiveness last week at House of, last week, yeah, at House of Learning. Where do we see people refusing enemy love? It's literally everywhere. You can point anywhere almost. 
course, social media, that's low-hanging fruit. But think about the famous stories of forgiveness. Like Nelson Mandela, you know, forgiving the horrors of apartheid. Or a family, after a mass shooting, a family publicly forgives the shooter for the senseless killing of their child. We think of those stories. And there's always a huge spectrum of response to those stories, isn't there? From that's absolutely beautiful to that is despicable and horrible, never forgive, never forget. You're disgracing the memory, don't forgive, that kind of thing. And if we're honest, the negative reactions are very understandable to us. And right there, that's when we can begin to understand the scandal of God's grace. His mercy for our repentant enemies should offend us at least for a good long moment. If it doesn't, we're not thinking it through. Because are you kidding me? They're senseless. They're wicked, deserve justice. They're not redemption. And that's true. They do deserve justice. But when we linger there long enough, the irony of Jonah 4 soaks in. All humanity deserves justice. And it's the scandalous forgiveness of our crucified King Jesus who loved and died for his enemies instead of killing them like they deserved. And then, whoever confesses that crucified king as Lord receives his forgiveness and healing and welcome into his family. Every enemy of his receives that welcome. Jonah fours that moment before Jonah wakes up to that. It's the moment we're invited to linger in. It's that, which way will we land? Which way will we end? And it's the only way. It's the only way to come alive to the criminal grace of God. In these final moments, Yahweh tries three times to knock on Jonah's door. Here's here's number one, verse four. But Yahweh replied, is it right for you to be angry? This is Yahweh the therapist. I like it. He's like, I, he's like, I see you're angry. What's going on there? What, what is that? And, and what's Jonah's response to Yahweh's first attempt? How does he respond? Just the wall. <laughs> he literally gives God the silent treatment. Look at verse 5. Jonah gone out, sat down. This is his response to God. He goes out, sits down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, a little, a little tent, a little pouting tent, you know. And he sits in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah ignores God again. The story starts with Jonah ignoring God back in chapter 1. And and God keeps working with him. But but Jonah ignores God again. And he goes out the city in his little little tent, right? So so he can wait and watch for what? What does Jonah want to see? He wants to see fire, destruction. He he, uh, wants fire from heaven. Does he have good reason to expect fire from heaven? Do you remember Jonah's message? His five words. Here's here's Jonah's epic sermon again. Ready for it? Forty more days. Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the whole sermon. Less words in Hebrew. Will be overthrown is one word. This was Jonah's prophecy from God. Question, is, is that true? Is that prophecy true? Was that sermon right? 100%. And this is where we get to the best part, in my opinion, of the book of Jonah. God does this little trick on Jonah. 
He's like trying to win Jonah every way he can. And here it's like this little, God like uses a pun. He uses a pun here. Um, and and this, this pun would never make it into a children's book because it's in Hebrew or whatever. But, <clears throat> but it's the best part, in my opinion, of the book. So see, <clears throat> see where it says, will be overthrown. That's one Hebrew word, hapak. Can you say hapak? I don't normally like using ancient dead languages in modern sermons. I'm not a fan of that, unless it preaches. I think this one preaches. So uh, <clears throat> the basic meaning of hapak, Gary said this last week. It, means, it just means, the basic meaning, turned over. That's it. Remember Gary's piece of toast. You drop a piece of toast, it falls the other way on the ground, the way you never want it to fall. You know? And so, so check this out. Jonah 3, verse 4, 40 more days, Nineveh, hapak. So in Hosea 7, hapak shows up. Israel is like a baked bread that has not been hapak, meaning you're immature, you're not ready. You haven't been turned over. Your baking process was kind of ruined. You're dark on one side and a little smushy on the other. It's just not right, you know? So that's one sense. And then sense two, in Lamentations 4, the sin of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was hapak in a moment. That one's really bad, right? <laughs> that's, definitely, that's definitely a destruction type thing. Turned over and everything. Like when you turn over a board game when you're a sore loser, you know? I've never done that. Just kidding. No. First, I did that in first grade. I did that in first grade with a game of checkers, and I got in trouble. I hapaked the checkerboard. So, and then number three, look at this, look at this hapak. Psalm 30, verse 11, God, you have hapak my grief and mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Is that a good or bad thing? It's really good. So apparently, hapak, it just means turned over. It could be from good to bad, like the top one. You were a great loaf of bread, but it ended up wrong. Or maybe it's bad to worse. That's definitely what Jonah is working with. Jonah's working with definition number two. Am I right? God, do to them what you did to Sodom. And then, and then, but there's also number three, which is from bad to good, turned over. So, so which meaning do you think Jonah wants? He thinks number two. Same word, which meaning did God have? God meant number three. Same word. You guys, isn't God tricky? God's pretty tricky. That's like a pun. You're supposed to be laughing if you, if you have Hebrew, ancient Hebrew humor. This is, a, this is a dad joke, but like a heavenly dad joke, you know? This is, uh, this is or as David Bennett says, this is Jehovah sneaky. I like that. So, so, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Do you think Jonah is laughing? He's ticked. Jonah is invited to laugh with God at, at God's ridiculous grace. Even, even when Jonah means something bad, God uses his words for healing. But Jonah wants nothing to do with this. Jonah's at his wit's end. He's tried to run away in a million ways, obviously hyperbolic. In like eight ways, Jonah has tried to run away in four chapters, but God won't stop engaging Jonah. And now Jonah tries to preach fire and brimstone, and God still gets his message of mercy across. 
So this is the irony of our human inability to cope with the grace of God. And Jonah's angry because God used even what Jonah meant as evil, turned it for good for the people Jonah hates. So Jonah's outside the city in his pity tent waiting for something horrible to happen to Nineveh. And so God comes a second time. He knocks a second time. And the first time, the first time uh, God the therapist didn't work, reasoning with him didn't work. So now God uses the leafy plant method, okay? Verse six, then Yahweh God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Note, this is the first time we see Jonah happy in this book. And, and side note, I've heard, I've heard jokes and actual people use this verse, God, how God made an herb to ease Jonah's discomfort, you know? But we're not going to do that with the Bible. That's just, <clears throat> that's just making the Bible dance a jig for you. Jonah's not rolling these or putting them in little edibles. So we... So we won't, so we're not going to, we're just not going to go there. We're not even going to validate that interpretation. Anyhow, the point is, the point is, whatever the plant is, it's providing shade. So, so Jonah's so angry, he wants to die because the shade is, and before the shade, he wants to die. And the next day, God gives him a shade plant. He's like, I'm so happy. Exceedingly happy is the Hebrew. It's really happy. And then, look at, look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Um, so I know, I know on one level, this I want to die language could be potentially triggering around grief and depression. But this is just... Biblical language meaning to be extreme, to show us something extreme. I find in my mind a picture of a two-year-old on an airplane. Yeah, have you, have you, have you been on that long flight with a two-year-old? And uh, whether it's your two-year-old or someone else's five rows away, right, there always comes that point when the kid just can't sit still. The, the jet engines are no longer cool. They're not awesome. And, there's, and something switches, and now everyone in the plane's trying not to stare at the meltdown in aisle 26. And no one feels worse than the parents in aisle 26, right? Uh, devastated that her kid is waking up 120 people over the Atlantic at 3 a.m. Anyone with me on that? This is Jonah. This is Jonah in aisle 26. One minute, this is the coolest plane ever, and the next, I want to die. Again and again. So this is Jonah, God's second attempt. The leafy plant method doesn't work. And Jonah's on the ground with a tantrum. And we're like, what is this? How is this God's word on a Sunday to us? Here's what this is. Verse 9, God's third attempt to reach Jonah. Ninth attempt to move toward Jonah in the book. It's his first question with a twist. God said to Jonah, okay, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So God couldn't reason about his anger toward his enemies. He's like, okay, let's think of something he likes. Something that's not himself. The plant is not Jonah. Let's move his self-centeredness onto something else for a moment, and maybe I'll be able to communicate to him something of my character. Your, 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 your anger at the Ninevites is not legit, but you don't get it. So what about being angry about the plant? Is that legit? Is that legit? See the dead plant, and you're angry, and you want to die. 
And, and so what does Jonah says? Uh, he's, next slide. He's like, yes, it is. And I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. And, and it, it makes us, the, the laughter that some of you are, you know, it's funny. When you hear something funny, and it's funny how humans respond to humor. We make this noise. It's not a word, but every culture does it. It's this noise that comes from our diaphragm, and we don't necessarily control how we sound when we do it. People are distinct when they laugh. And, but every culture is supposed to see this and chuckle because every good comedian will tell you that a good piece of humor only is funny because it exposes previously unseen truth. So this is supposed to be doing this to you. But now we're, it's up to us to find the unseen truth. We're like, Jonah's beyond all reason. He's crazy at this point. And, and that's the point. He is beyond all reason. He is a goner. He's a goner at this point. There's no reaching him. And still, Yahweh doesn't give up. He still comes to Jonah. Past attempt number three, he does another bonus attempt. And the book ends with God's attempt. It doesn't end with Jonah's response. It ends with the pursuing God. Look at, look at the closing words. But Yahweh says, You've been concerned, extreme compassion about this plant. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. That pl- in other words, the plant hasn't been in your life for more than a day. And should I not have extreme compassion for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And Jonah's like, the end. That's how Jonah ends. Like, what a bizarre story. What do we do with that? The tragic story of Jonah and the God who can't stop pursuing and loving and inviting every kind of person to repent. See how you feel about your plant, Jonah. Well, imagine 120 wonderful plants except their people who want to do what's right, but are so misguided that they're getting mixed up on what's right, left, up, down. This is what Yahweh is saying to everyone here. Yahweh is describing how he sees every human. Broadly speaking, all humans, virtually all the time, are just creatures trying to tell our right hands from our left, trying to make sense of our emotions, what's ultimately right and wrong, And we're often lost and misguided morally and spiritually. This is the common description of humans in the Bible. What's what's a popular Bible analogy for humans as a group? Sheep. Sheep. Like thick-headed sheep. They're actually really smart and like scientifically smart. But we think of them as dumb. That helps too. Thick-headed sheep who move around in herds and they feel safe in their tribes and they tend to wander off. This is the idea here. But listen, God is, not, God is not excusing. This doesn't excuse the Ninevites' behavior. He's not saying, hey, they don't know any better, so I'm not going to punish them. No, the Ninevites slaughtered countless people. They're very accountable for their evil behavior, but ultimately it's because they're lost and misguided. And that's where their injustice comes from. And that's how Jonah ends, right there. Yahweh communicating his compassion for every lost, misguided soul in history, and then period. And we're like, well, what did Jonah do? 
VeggieTales takes it a step further. They're like, you know, Jonah was a prophet, but he really never got it. Sad but true. They say he really never got it. So, so did, did Jonah never get it? Actually, VeggieTales goes too far. We don't know. Some have said, well, the fact that the book exists and Jonah probably wrote it proves that him writing it is his repentance. We don't know. We're not supposed to go there. Like, we, did, what did Jonah, what happened to Jonah? If that's what we're concerned about, we miss the point. This story was never about just Jonah in the first place. Who is this story really about? You. And I mean the collective you in this room. This is a word from God to his people. Jonah represents God's covenant people, who is now the church. And the real question we should be asking, if you, church, really cared about all people the way God does right now, how would your life change? How would your thinking and speaking about people change? How would your enemy, and here's maybe the most important question, how would your enemies notice that change in you? How are you going to live out this response? So Jonah is this ridiculous character of the offensiveness of God's grace and that God loves your enemy just as much as he loves you. And this book ends by asking you, what if you lived out this reality now? What would measurably change in your life? And how would your worst enemies see those changes in you? Let that sink in, especially if you have a fresh wound from a friend or a fresh wound from an enemy or you're struggling to forgive someone for a long time and you've just settled for where you're at. Well, guess what? I, the ending of Jonah packs a strong punch for you. Or maybe you're angry at that ideological tribe that political group over there because of dangerous ideology and we're in this sheepfold and that sheepfold wants to infiltrate ours and change ours so we're angry and fearful and like them or whatever, then the ending of Jonah packs a punch for you. Because Jonah clearly thinks those Ninevites are the worst group on the planet. And he has good reasons for thinking that, just like we do. But of course, in the story of Jonah, who's really the problem? Jonah. In the story of Jonah, who's really the hard-hearted person? It's not Nineveh. It's not them. It's Jonah, the guy who represents not them, but the covenant people. In this book, the target of God's judgment isn't them, it's us. God's like, hey, People, Jonah, Jonah people, you're worried about them, but can't you see what's happening here? Yeah, you're part of God's covenant family, and that's cool for you. Awesome. You know that's cool for you. But that doesn't for one second excuse your religious hypocrisy and superiority. You are just as broken and misguided as they are, Jonah. Can you not see this by now? Shouldn't I be concerned about them and their animals, their plants, their pets? Shouldn't I care about what they care about too? And, and there it is, you guys. This is where God is leading us through Jonah, is that, is that God loves your enemy right now. God loves your enemy right now. And some of us might hear that. We're like, okay, I, I think I can live with that. I can roll with God loving my enemy. I'm not really sure how he wants 
practically me to do that. God can love whoever he wants. I just don't know how, and that's just, I've got a really busy June, and I'm trying to get ready for vacation. So I don't know what that means for my life. And uh, I don't want to make this year really hard all of a sudden. And so here we come, right, to what might be the basic core of the gospel. Forgiveness of one's enemies. This is what Jonah's about. Jesus said it this way. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And even as Christians, we respond to that teaching in bizarre ways. We're like, I mean, of course Jesus would say that. (laughs) That's really noble and Jesus-y. But I'm just straight up like not going to do that. Maybe later. (laughs) At least that's how we live. Jesus, you're you're crazy if you think that's how it's going to be. But this was Jesus' whole announcement of the kingdom. And this is the whole point of the table. And we have one person getting baptized at this gathering today who signed up ahead of time, who is seeing Jesus clearly. And every single one of you are invited to see Jesus clearly and come into the waters along with Shelton today. Jesus, Jesus announced the kingdom where misguided people who have made themselves God enemies are now invited to receive forgiveness from a crucified king who forgave his enemies as they were killing him. And then, when we receive God's forgiveness for our sins, we become not just cool with God, but we become his own forever family. Not just, and not just family with God and the people in this room. I like you, Park Hill. I'd love to be family with you guys forever. But we're also going to be family with people who are currently our enemies, who may repent. We might become family with people we currently see as part of evil governments in the other side of the world. Maybe people who are on the Russian side of things right now, and God is moving. God is working behind the scenes. Or maybe on the ISIS side of things, angels from heaven and messages from God are reaching their hearts, and God is moving now. Or the cartels in Mexico talk about abusers. Or people on the far-right conservative side or the far-left neoliberal side, certainly Yahweh wants them as family. The question of the book of Jonah is, do you want this? And if so, how are you living toward them now? Remember, Christians are Jonah in the story, God's covenant people. And Jonah is the one who does know his right from his left. Jonah does know who God truly is and what God is like. And so God is, Jonah is the one getting called out for his hypocrisy. The Ninevites don't know. They don't know which way is up. They're going to die in their sins apart from the gospel. So Yahweh sends Jonah not to boycott Nineveh, but to personally bring God's word to Nineveh in a way they can understand and respond to. Hopefully you hear me there. And then when they hear the word, they respond and receive the same grace we receive. How are we ready as a church to be in the lives of the them, whoever they may be, with a clear gospel ready for them to respond and immediately belong. And according to the story, how does God invite? How does God invite? The answer is his own character. I'm Yahweh, 
Yahweh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished, which is why I invite everyone to repent and belong to the family of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today through baptism and communion as we come to the table. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this is who you are. Thank you that this is who you call us to be. We pray now that you would give us power to love like you do. It's, it's scandalizes us. It offends us. Your love is so hard for us to swallow, except when it's for us. That's really, really good. So, Lord, change our hearts. Give us compassion so that we ask for a blessing on our enemies and that they would respond to you. We pray that the whole world would be saved and that we'd be the space ready to welcome them home. We'd represent the Father welcoming all prodigals, knowing that you are ultimately the Father who welcomes all prodigals. Show us in our lives where we're supposed to change to be more like you in this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, a couple things. We're going to open the waters of baptism in a minute, and Shelton's going to get ready uh, to go in the water. But first, we're going to have the bread and cup. So during this song, feel free to stand and walk forward and receive the grace of Jesus, his personal presence in your life through bread and cup. Bring it back to your seat. Come to the table. Bring it back to your seat, and then hold on to it, and we're going to eat and drink, and then we're going to celebrate a baptism.